Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Sarah Hurwitz. Her new book is Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism, After Finally Choosing to Look There. After a decade as a political speechwriter for leaders like Hillary Clinton and President Barack Obama, and as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama, Sarah Hurwitz decided to apply her skills as a communicator to writing a book about Judaism, and no one is more surprised than she is. Hurwitz was the quintessential lapsed Jew until at age 36, after a tough breakup, she happened upon an advertisement for beginner's class on Judaism. She attended on a whim, but was blown away by what she found. The rest, as they say, is history. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Sarah Hurwitz. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure. You've written a book here all along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism. And finally, after finally choosing to look there, you were working in the White House as a speechwriter for Michelle Obama. You got broken up with and you were looking for something to do, right? Like, and you got into Judaism. <laughs> I know, right? It's it's a little bit of a, it's a sort of, it's a, a unusual story. I, yeah, I broke up with this guy and I just was looking to fill my time. I was not in existential crisis. I was not on a spiritual journey. I just happened to hear about an intro to Judaism class at the local JCC. Just thought like, okay, something to fill my time. You know, I'd grown up without a lot of Jewish background and I figured, okay, I should probably learn something about Judaism. So just signed up took the class, and I was blown away by what I found in that class. You know, I think if you grow up like me, where your only points of contact with Judaism are two dull, incomprehensible, you know, synagogue services at Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and like a really boring Seder, you don't necessarily think to look to Judaism for answers to your big life questions. And in this class, I actually discovered that Judaism has a lot of insight and wisdom about what it means to be human. I just hadn't been exposed to it before. So I started learning. So did you like write like a five-star Yelp review? I mean, was it a fantastic <laughs> teacher? Like, was it like, because I mean, I can imagine a lot of terrible classes, like or intro to this or that. You know, I have to be honest, the class was fine. It wasn't some like, you know, transformative class. It wasn't like a dead poet society kind of situation. It was really just, it was more just the materials that we were actually studying, like the actual texts, you know, these ancient Jewish texts from, from rabbis written, you know, 2000 years ago that I just found to have a lot of wisdom for everyday life. Did you, okay, so you have a pretty extensive acknowledgements, like in the, in, <laughs> in the end of the book, did you acknowledge the guy that you broke up with? Cause like in some sense <laughs> without him, there's no book, right? You know, it's funny. I didn't, I should though. I actually feel so much gratitude to this guy. Cause like, you know, that breakup really did start me on this whole journey of exploration that has been so enriching to my life. So I, I do feel a lot of gratitude for him, actually. I'm a huge West Wing fan. And if any, if life in the White House is anything like, anything at all, like the show, I, I, I can't imagine that anybody has time to have meaningful relationships. Or I mean, dating <laughs> must be a nightmare if you're working in the White House. It is pretty tough, I have to say. Like, it, you know, 
I worked for, I was a speechwriter for President Obama for my first year and a half, two years in the White House. And then I switched over to being Michelle Obama's chief speechwriter. And I will say that first year and a half, two years was particularly hard because, you know, when something happens, when there's some crisis, the president is the first responder, right? He has to be the one out there dealing with it, making the statement. So your life is just very erratic, right? Everything is last minute. Things are always changing. Whereas the first lady is not the first responder, right? That's not her job. So she can actually be a little more proactive. She can kind of have a little bit more control over her schedule. So things got better once I switched over to writing for her. But you do end up rescheduling and canceling things a lot. So there's this scene in the in the West Wing when Will Bailey, the speechwriter, he's 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 it played by uh, Josh Manila or whatever. He's uh, Melina, yeah, Melina, yeah. He's asking uh, Jed Bartlett, the president, like you know, there's this relationship where speechwriters and, and and the and the and they're you know they're, who they're writing for develop a kind of relationship you get a sense for where they like their semicolons and pauses and jeb Bartlett says are you gonna ask me on a date i mean but you kind of, i'm like this is so weird but you kind of talk about that it's interesting in the book you say that like when you transition to writing for michelle obama that you you could hear her voice in yours or you like it, it was it, it was easier to write for her because there was something about it that felt more you had some kind of connection that that felt easier to work with yeah i mean i think that you know i i realized like i had actually first met her in 2008 when i was working you know, i been with I've been Hillary Clinton's chief speechwriter in 08. And then after she conceded, I got hired on the Obama campaign and I was writing for him. But I met Mrs. Obama when I helped with her 2008 convention speech, just as, you know, just to help out. And, you know, I really just felt right from the beginning, like we just had this connection, right? Her voice felt more natural to me than his voice in some ways, right? She's sort of more of a personal, emotional speaker, which is also, by the way, part of the role of First Lady, right? The president is is the commander in chief. It's a more kind of official role, whereas I think the first lady has a lot more room to shape it to her personality and her interests. So I just felt like her voice was sort of a better fit. Like we sort of have a similar way of, of speaking and thinking. And, you know, this is a woman who knows exactly who she is. She always knows what she wants to say. And so she just, you know, the trick of writing for her was really to type as quickly as possible as she was telling me what she wanted to say in a speech. You know, she really had a sense of what she wanted with every speech she gave. It sounds like you got to know her pretty well. Yeah, you know, I did. I, I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, we weren't like hanging out, getting Manny petties on the weekends or anything, but I, I certainly, I think I got to know her sensibility in terms of, you know, how, how she liked, loved to express herself. I got to certainly know her passions for the issues that she cared about and for, for being a mom, right, which was a very important part of her life and still is. So, yeah, I think in that way I got to know her, you know, but I, again, you know, it's a professional relationship, right? You're working together. We weren't, like, hanging out on the weekends. Did she ever, did she know what was going on in your life for the breakup, the exploration of Judaism? Was that part of your story that she was aware of as you were working there? You know, I don't know if I told her about the breakup. Um, yeah, I don't remember. I do know. I think she knew that I cared a lot about Judaism, that I was exploring that. And she, when I decided to write the book, I think she was really proud of me and really excited about it. And she tweeted this beautiful tweet when the book came out, which just really meant a lot to me. Yeah. Gosh, to get on Michelle Obama's Twitter feed, you've got to like, I mean, that's like, <laughs> it was, list. I, I mean, cried a lot. I mean, it was, it was totally like, you know. Life goal achieved. It was really kind and really loving, and it just meant a great deal to me. So you grew up in what I think is sort of like, I mean, you're pretty honest about like, from your perspective, it was, you didn't have a really religiously inspiring 
upbringing like you you sort of you say how you broke uh one of the commandments by bearing false witness to your parents about ter- how terrible hebrew school was so you can get in a, more, a, a sort of more relaxed hebrew school and did the bat mitzvah and you were out like, <laughs> yep. kind of like That's about right. I'm, a, I'm an alumni of the, of the synagogue now right like i'm out <laughs> exactly uh, <I> graduated <laughs> i love how you talk about going back to judaism and you you have this phrase in the book i love you said that that um then in Judaism, you discovered the questions are often more important than the answers. While many of the answers are quite impressive, it turned out that Judaism had uh, deep wisdom to offer you. Teachings that have helped me to be kinder and more honest challenged my lazy and self-righteous assumptions about religion and led me to view the values of modern secular society with a more skeptical eye. I, I, it sounds like like in your religious exploration, you learned how to doubt some of your doubts. Yeah, I think that's a very that's a really lovely way to put it. I think that's right. I think I learned to question, you know, I think we tend, you know, I think there's a tendency among some folks to just be reflexively against organized religion, to just assume, oh, it's hateful, it's bigoted, it's stupid, right? And and that's understandable because I think, unfortunately, some of the loudest voices in the conversation about faith are the ugliest ones, right? They're the ones who distort these traditions to serve their own small, bigoted, hateful, kind of stupid purposes, unfortunately. so the, And those voices get so much airtime. But there are so many other voices of faith in every faith tradition that are smart and thoughtful and incredibly loving and compassionate and that I think are actually working to truly embody the deepest and highest and most central teachings of these faiths. But they don't make headlines, right? They don't make news. Right, the person who is quietly helping those who are struggling because that's what they believe their their faith tells them. No one's going to write a you know front page article about that, right? So I think that there is a lot of beautiful, deep, thoughtful work going on in faith communities, but it often doesn't get a lot of attention. You you also write about in the introduction when you're explaining your story that you're you're very careful not to judge. Uh, other traditions or even people that are sort of do-it-yourself kind of eclectic spiritualists. But but you do say that people like Frederica Matthews Green, who's an Eastern Orthodox thinker, and Danya Ruttenberg, who's a rabbi, that you found some wisdom in people like this that say, look, like there's something of value to getting into a particular tradition so that it, it, it can challenge and shape you that it's not sort of a designer sort of consumer product, but it's actually, you know, that that you're choosing it's choosing you as much as you're choosing it, right? Like that, that, that there's something about being in a concrete tradition that seems to like have a, have an expansive effect, or at least it seems like it had it on you. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I look around at a lot of modern spirituality and, you know, it does strike me a little bit that what it is is people saying like, oh, this, this thing is so me. So I'm going to do this. And this is so me. And this so resonates with me. And this like, so affirms me, which is like, look, you know, self-affirmation and self-discovery and self-exploration is very important, right? From a spiritual angle, like, of course you should do those things. But I worry a little bit that what's missing is the self-discipline, the self-restraint, the self-sacrifice, the self-transcendence, right? Like, I think it's great to call out to the universe and manifest things in the universe. But I worry a little bit that the universe never calls back and says, hey, you know what? your friend is sick, you really need to go visit her. Or, hey, you know, that guy who's out there on the street struggling, you got to go do something to help him because he is your brother, right? Like there isn't a lot of um, calling back and sort of demanding that we rise above our own selfishness and greed and anger and judgment. So I just, you know, I think some of the new age spirituality, I just wonder like, what are the lessons there? What are the obligations? What are the demands? Are we being called to challenge your assumptions. You know, I always thought like, 
I'm a good person, right? I don't need religion to make me a better person. I know not to lie and cheat and steal. Like, I'm good. But I have to say, studying Jewish ethics made me realize, like, you know, maybe I'm a good person, but I'm certainly not a great person. You know, just in terms of like how I use my speech, I just never really thought about, you know, the ways in which I use my speech in incredibly hurtful ways. And I don't even think about it, right? Like a perfect example could be, you know, Scott, if you and I are coworkers and we get into a fight and I'm just so angry at you. And so I go home that night and I call seven different friends and I tell them, Scott is the worst. He is, he's lazy. He's bad at his job. He's totally dishonest. I just think he's. I'm sitting here like, how do you know me? You're describing me perfectly. (laughs) Right? So I go, I tell these seven friends this, and then I feel better. Like, I've gotten it off my chest. You know, good. Like, you're the worst. Then the next day, we come to work, and we make up. Total misunderstanding. We're really sorry. Okay. Well, I've just now trashed you to seven people. And for all I know, they went and told other people that all the bad things I said about you. And then what if a month from now, you apply to a job at the company where one of those seven people or the people they've told about you works? And that person's like, oh, Scott, I, I've heard them things about this guy. Let's just, you know, let's just hold. I don't I can't remember. Something just, something's a little off about this guy, I think. I've heard some bad things. It's like, wow, you know, just with my thoughtless kind of angry words, I've really affected your job prospects, right? And there's just so, I think there's so much more subtle teachings about how to be a good person in Judaism, and also just looking at the the Jewish laws around how do you help those who are struggling financially, right? It's not just like, give them money and it's fine. It's like, okay, well, how do you give to them? Do you do it in a way that doesn't embarrass them? Do you do it in a way that empowers people? Do you do it, you know, there's all this thinking. So I just thought like, wow, this is much more, this is a much higher bar than I hold myself to. And now it's something that I aspire to. I, I often fail, right? I fail 20 times a day. But, you know, I used to fail 25 times a day, right? So it's it sort of made me a little bit better. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I'm thinking, well, if I didn't get the job, maybe I'd sign up for the Judaism course and I'd write a book, you know. Um, right. So I have <laughs> you know. right? yeah, you, you actually, in the, in the section ethics, tell a great story where a rabbi, somebody is gossiping about a rabbi. And he asked his forgiveness. He said, okay, go home, cut open a pillow and throw the feathers all over the place. And then he, he says, oh, great. He comes back. He says, did you do it? Yeah, I think he's forgiven. He said, and the rabbi says, now go gather them. Yeah. And, I, and that, I love that story because it perfectly illustrates how you just laid out like this, the, the, the effects of our decisions. of, of, of right? basic. And it's fascinating to me that you say like words like it, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful confession to hear from a speechwriter who's life is words that they learned that they could be careless with words. Isn't that funny? Because I always, that's, that's such a, that's a really insightful observation. You know, I've always been so convinced about the power of words, right? Like I, I'm so careful as a speechwriter to make sure that every word is the right word. Every word counts in a speech, but in my own personal life, you know, I was really careless with my speech and I still too often am, right? I, I, I didn't really think about the consequences that my words could have. And studying the Jewish laws around speech made me so much more conscious of that, right? I mean, there's actually something called stealing the mind in it, this idea of stealing the mind, which is, okay, if I'm, let's say we're coworkers again, and I really don't like you, but I'm having a housewarming party and I'm inviting everyone in the office and I'm thinking like, oh, should I invite Scott? And I said, you know what? No, I'm not inviting him. I don't want to invite him. Great. So then anyway, I'm about to send out the invitations and you tell me, oh, hey, Sarah, I'm going on vacation for the next two weeks. And I think, wait a second, my party is next weekend. I'm like, hey, Scott, I would love you to come to my party because I know you can't come. Now, you can say like, okay, what's wrong with that, right? Win-win. 
right? Scott feels good because he gets the invitation. I feel good because I don't have to deal with the awkwardness of not inviting him. But Judaism actually says, no, you really can't do that because what you're doing is you're stealing Scott's mind. I'm basically making you think I've given you something of value to me when I haven't. I'm making you feel indebted to me when really you aren't, right? I'm sort of giving you something. It's a little bit deceptive. I thought like, wow, that is a very subtle kind of ethic. And I've done that. I do that all the time, that kind of thing. Just thought, you know, I need to be a little more careful about that. Yeah. And there's something about, there's a little book that a guy, a philosopher, Harry Frankfurt wrote called, um, well, he wrote this one book called On Bullshit, which should be, uh, it's like an 80 page book. I've heard of it. Yeah. It's a great, it should be required reading for any like undergraduate before you talk in class. And he wrote his follow-up monograph called On the Truth. And he talks about how the, the reason why truth is so important is that you learn part of maturing as a child and growing into a, 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 a decent person is knowing that there's things external to you that you can't control. Like you learn the difference in you and the world. And every time the truth is eroded, that line blurs a little bit. And, and this is what I think is powerful about what you just described, right? Like that these subtle ways in which you and the person are dehumanized by something that oftentimes many people wouldn't even go th- give a thought to. Mm, exactly. Right. Exactly. You just, I just didn't think about it. And I think that studying Jewish ethics, it really, you know, it just kind of opened my eyes to a lot of the, the casual harm I was doing without thinking. Right. And it, it, it sort of made me a little bit more sensitive. And again, I want to be very clear. I mess up all the time. I've not become this amazing, perfect person, but I have become someone who does occasionally stop before I, I speak, who does occasionally kind of like type out the email and then just think, you know what? don't send this. Just don't. That's It's not necessary, right? And I think that's a win, right? I think that that's actually really valuable. Yeah, it's interesting because you write this book. It's, I mean, some of it's, there's there's a memoirish quality to it, but it's also, you say, the book that you wish you had had at the beginning of your exploration, which I, I think is incredibly insightful. And, I, you know, the, one of the early chapters, you kind of summarize the plotline of the Torah and have some reflections on on the Torah. It's, I think it's so incredibly well done. And after talking about the Torah and the plotline, you say that that basically the Torah's meaning challenges you uh, and how and and you say it's it's an oddly self-critical account of ordinary people called to meet extraordinary challenges who often fall short. And and you say you connect to this to the humanity of it. it's not it's not simply Aesop's fables or something or mythology, but this is a really human spiritual saga that it seems like you were able to discover more of your story through this ancient story. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the Torah is it's Judaism's key holy text, just like the Quran is the key holy text of Islam. And basically, the Torah is the first five books of what Christians refer to as the Old Testament, but Jews refer to it as the Tanakh. That's the, the word for it. But, um, you know, it's funny, I think I, I relate to it on two levels. I think on a, on a on a really sort of 30,000 foot high level, you know, I look at the Torah, which I think was written by human beings. I don't believe it was written by God. Uh, but I, you know, what I see is I see a story about a God who rescues this really helpless kind of pathetic group of Israelite slaves, frees them from slavery, and basically says to them, okay, you guys have a mission. And that mission is to create a society that is the exact opposite of Egypt. Because in Egypt, you know, the wealthy and the powerful, they abuse the vulnerable. And this God tells these people, you have to do the opposite of that. The vulnerable are very important. You have to care deeply for the widow, the orphan, the servant, the poor, the stranger, right? The Torah 36 times says, love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And by the way, stranger means the non-Israelite, right? The outsider. 
which is such a just, you know, think about today, how resonant that is. So I just, you know, on a high level, I really relate to this as a very inspiring story of what we as Jews are called to do. And then on kind of a more personal level, you know, you look at these characters and they're very complicated. You know, you see them change and develop and wrestle and struggle and fail and have these heroic moments and these just total moments of failure. I mean, the character of Moses, especially, you know, this guy, like God comes to this guy in a burning bush and is like, you have to go save the Israelites. And Moses is like, nope, not going to do it. Don't want to. Sorry. It's like God talking to him. Yeah, I, like, love, I love the beginning you know? to a story too. I, 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 it's like, hey, you know, he's in Midian tending his father-in-law's flock. It just sounds like, man, <laughs> this is not how I, I never thought I was going to be taking care of my father-in-law's sheep. Like, where did it right. go wrong? I should have right. gone to law school. Exactly, right? It's just like, like, how real and human is this? Right? Like he's fled from Egypt. It just like, and he's tending and, and like, you know, and he's like, I can't do it. Right. He's like, I'm not qualified for this job. Right. Which like, how many times in our lives have we felt like not qualified for something that we were asked to do? And this is what Moses said. You know, God gets really annoyed and he's like, dude, you have to do this. So Moses does it. And Moses is just constantly frustrated. Right. The Israelites are so difficult and Moses is frustrated and they're being disobedient and they're anxious. And it's like, it's all so human. Right. It's not like it's like a story of these powerful warriors who go and, you know, conquer an empire and emperors and kings. It's the story of these fallible, anxious ex-slaves. It's really quite extraordinary. Yeah. One of the things you 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 talk about, the, I remember I was in Princeton once and in a lecture and there was a scholar who was giving a lecture and kind of text of terror. And this Jewish scholar, Peter Oak, stood up and he said, he started waving his finger. He says, you're talking about naughty texts, <laughs> texts that are being naughty. We don't like that. We don't like other things. But, you know, with the kind of naughty texts or the hard texts, you, you tell the story about how Michelle Obama was speaking at this school that it, it, for, for Native Americans, or, or, and it was like, it had this legacy of oppression. And she tells her own story of being descendant from slaves and, and the oppression there. And it's like, you know, nobody probably would imagine this scene uh, and, and the dark parts, the, the, the injustice, the oppression, the struggles, these are all part of this beautiful scene. And you kind of liken that to the messiness of the Bible, that somehow that, that it, the underbelly is part of this uh, messy redemption story. I just thought that was such a brilliant way to deal with texts that are messy, you know, without sort of just cut it without excising. Right. And, you know, here's the reality. You know, thank God we don't live by the original version of our constitution. I mean, hello, that, that was a document that allowed slavery. It allowed human beings to be treated as property, which is an abomination, right? That's a horror. You know, women couldn't vote. I mean, the original constitution allowed some of the greatest crimes against humanity, right? But thankfully, we have spent the last 240 odd years reinterpreting it, reimagining it. And the same thing is true of the Torah. We don't live by the Torah, by the original, you know, just surface meaning of the Torah. We'd be stoning each other if that were the case, right? We'd be putting each other's eyes out. Instead, for 2,500 years, We've been reinterpreting it and reimagining it and re-understanding it, starting with these very ancient rabbis all the way up to today. So this is why, you know, in every tradition except for in every part of the Jewish world except for orthodoxy, gay people can be rabbis. Gay people can be married. Women can be rabbis, right? That's 90% of the American Jewish world because we have continued that proud tradition of interpreting our text, right? It's not, Judaism isn't a dogmatic tradition. It's an interpretive one. And I, I think that's why it survived for so many thousands of years. 
you know, you think about like the, our original constitution was a document that allowed for slavery, right? Women didn't have the right to vote. I mean, that, that is a horror, right? But thank goodness we don't live by the original version of our constitution. We spent 200 odd years reinterpreting it, reimagining it, amending it. And the same can be said of the Torah, right? No Jew lives by a literal surface meaning of the Torah. It's a 2,500 year old document. Right. If we live by it, we'd be stoning each other. We'd be putting each other's eyes out. I mean, that's crazy. Right. Instead, for the past twenty five hundred years, we've been reinterpreting and reimagining that document. That's why in, you know, the kind of Judaism that the vast majority of American Jews practice, that 90 percent of American Jews practice, women are rabbis, gay people are rabbis. We perform gay marriages. Right. Like this is because we have reinterpreted it and reimagined our core texts. And that's because Judaism is not a dogmatic tradition. There aren't a bunch of rules written down, etched in stone, that we just sort of mindlessly follow. We're constantly debating, interpreting, trying to really understand the deepest values of the traditions and live them out. You tell this powerful story about how in 1946, there were these displaced persons, survivors of the Holocaust from, uh, you know, from concentration camps, and they couldn't. They couldn't, there wasn't a Torah, a complete copy of the Torah in Europe. And these rabbis asked that they be imported from the United States. And the, the army said, yeah, that, we'll do that for you. And, and you make this amazing point that like, of all the things those people needed, that this was so important. And that and that being people of the book is being part of like, I love the, the analogy used about the Constitution. It's part of this living, breathing story that that it's not its purpose isn't to live it out by rote, but to 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 live into the continued story. And to do that, you have to know the story to, to sort of improv and continue to live it today. That's right. You do. Right. I think, you know, I think that one of the challenges that we face in modern Judaism is that, you know, we've kind of reduced it to an American style religion, right? Where it's like, okay, it's a couple of holidays a year and then you go to Hebrew school and then you stop learning at age like 12 or 13. And that's actually just when you're ready to start learning, right? That's actually just when you're ready to, to truly start embracing the really radical, you know, beautiful, powerful, deep, complicated, sophisticated wisdom of Judaism. And I think, you know, in order to kind of keep this tradition going, we actually have to know about it, right? We actually have to know what Judaism, the ethical wisdom Judaism offers. We have to understand the spiritual wisdom Judaism offers. And if our Judaism is just like a few holidays, or if it's just like anti-Semitism plus Israel equals Judaism, then I think we're really missing out. And I think it's going to be very hard to keep this tradition going. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, 
Any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer State, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You write a whole chapter about theology where you talk about getting freeing God from the sort of human shaped cage in the sky. And, you know, and you, this is like, I've read a lot of theology in my life, and this is like, I love this part of the book. It's incredibly well written and, and, and very, I mean, it's just, I wonder, like, were you a student of were you religiously curious at all before this journey? Because you, you really think like you think intuitively like a theologian. I mean, you sort of you you just get the rhythm of it in a way that that I, that really uh, I was struck by as I was reading. I mean, was that always a curiosity, or is it something that that's just clicked on later in life? You know, it's funny. I totally not at all, not at all. I I never studied theology, religion, spirituality before I started learning about Judaism. But once I did, I was just endlessly curious about it because the fact is the idea that there is like some being in the sky who controls everything and rewards us when we're good and punishes us when we're naughty and really loves it when we say prayers to him. And of course it's a him. I just don't buy it. There's just, I just don't buy it. You know, I, I, I find arguments about such a being so frustrating because it's like the same argument. It's like, God controls everything and is just and good. It's like, okay, well, what about the Holocaust? Oh, that wasn't God. That was people. Okay, so what does God do all day? Um, oh, it's it's subtle. It's it's a mystery. We can't. It's like, okay, let's just stop with that, right? Like, like, like I just I, I find it frustrating. I want nothing to do with it. But then, when, but when you start getting into some of the Jewish theology that's more sophisticated, that's more subtle, then I find it really interesting, right? There are there are Jewish thinkers and theologians who say that that God is everything right? You're God. I'm God. There's no, the idea that there's some boundary between us is an illusion. So me being cruel to you, me abusing you, like that's just, that doesn't make sense because I'm, I'm abusing God. I mean, if you actually thought that the, the person on the street who asks you for money when you're walking by, if you thought, wow, that person is God, very different approach to your life, right? There are Jewish, there's, you know, Martin Buber is a Jewish thinker who says that God is what arises between two people in deep human relation with each other two people who are fully contemplating each other's humanity and just seeing each other in the fullest way, what arises between them in that moment of deep relation is God. There is Mordecai Kaplan who says that God is the process by which we become our highest, truest selves, right? These are a lot of really sophisticated and moving ideas of the divine that you are not a man in the sky rewarding and punishing us. So there is, you know, I was really moved by the complexity of Jewish theology. Yeah, and it was so interesting to me about this chapter of the book is that you you say that you know well okay the sort of god is in control like here's why there's this metaphor you know in the bible but then also this god's also not just transcend but god's imminent and god's this and god's that and, and you have it you sort of like 
to try to give kind of a, a real sympathetic treatment to all these lenses and some more than others, because you connect with some more than others, but you're really generous to all of them. And then you say, I love this line. You say, theology is really easy if you're a fundamentalist or an atheist, but yeah. if you're anything in between, you're going to have some contradictions and, and complications. And, and really the truth is probably in there somehow. And I thought that's a beautiful thing, right? Because we're all complex. We're all, you know, we're all complex creatures. We're all full of contradictions and and why shouldn't knowing the divine uh, be at least as, as, as complex, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, I think we also, we spend a lot of, like, spending too much time on theology, I think, is not helpful because, like, we don't know, right? Like, these are just kind of our little human minds trying to articulate something we kind of vaguely feel. I actually, what I love more is thinking about experience. Um, there's a rabbi named Arthur Green who writes so beautifully about so much Jewish thinking and theology. And he talks, he has a beautiful passage in one of his books where he says, like, think about the moment when your child was born or when your parent took their last breath or when you were out at night looking at the stars, feeling so tiny in this infinite universe or when you were swept away by a beautiful piece of art or music or when you were in deep relation with another person. And in these moments, you just felt something transcendent. It was something out of the ordinary. You can't quite articulate it, right? There's something that I think a lot of us sense but we can't quite articulate it, right? And we try to put a lot of kind of descriptions and categories and dogma around it, but none of it quite fits, right? So I think that, you know, starting with that experience and kind of, you know, that experience that makes us feel, I think, a greater sense of wonder and awe and connection with life and sort of flushness with our lives, you know, that's something really beautiful. And I don't, you know, I call it God, you could also call it neurons firing in your brain, right? <laughs> There's a lot of ways to describe it. And I'm, I'm certainly not interested in imposing my spirituality or theology on anyone else. This is so personal. But I do think that starting with that experience and then kind of looking into some of the theology and thinking around it is, is an easier and more helpful way to go than some sort of dogmatic definition of God that you either accept or reject. Yeah, and but yours is pretty a, a pretty theological Judaism, it seems. Like I mean, and and again, you'd say that like it helped you to go kind of bottom up rather than top down. But but you do seem like somebody that's that thinks theologically. I mean, you, you that those concepts are. I mean, it's possible to be in any religious tradition and be pretty observant without being very theological. But it seems like some of these ideas are 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 something that you seem to. Have put a lot of energy. I mean, you went on a silent retreat, for goodness sakes, and started processing this, which I love the story because you sound like kind of like a bag of cats at this retreat, like so frustrated. It, <laughs> you narrated so well, like, you know, as you, as you and it's, but it seemed like this really was a, a powerful experience for you learning how to work this stuff out. It really was, you know, it was, um, you know, this, I went on a silent Jewish meditation retreat when I first started exploring Judaism. I was very skeptical about it. I've since been on eleven of them, so <laughs> clearly it was, it was it quite powerful. Is it for you? Like, I mean, are, are you still a little bag of cats? Is like when you go there? Always. I mean, are. I mean like, there's some people have this crazy idea that they're going to sit down to meditate and their mind will clear of all thoughts and they'll achieve bliss. I know people who've been meditating for fifty years and they've never experienced that. Right? Meditation, at least the way I practice it, mindfulness meditation is a lot more like going to the gym than like going to the beach right? You're just, you're sitting and your mind is constantly wandering, yeah. right? And, and the key isn't to try to get rid of that. I, please don't, you'd be dead if your mind stopped wandering and generating thoughts. The key is just to notice that with love and compassion. It's like, oh, you know, I'm sitting here trying to focus on my breath. And suddenly I'm like spinning some story about how the pain in my leg might be cancer. It's like, oh my gosh, 
that's so funny. My mind is being all crazy. Like, okay, mind, no problem. Like, come back. And then you kind of feel a little bit of relief. And then two seconds later, your mind's wandering again. And you just lovingly bring it back. And that practice is, you know, over time, there's space between the thoughts grows a little bit longer, right? You get kind of more moments of peace. And you're just training your mind to constantly come back to the present moment so that you can actually enjoy your life and notice it instead of being constantly caught up in thoughts. And, you know, my spiritual understanding of that is like when I am sort of coming back to the present, that's, you know, I feel like I'm sort of more connected with the divine. I'm more connected with the flow of life than when I'm just caught up in kind of crazy thoughts careening into a future that doesn't exist in my brain. Well, one of the things you say about God that I, I found so powerful that you said that after you'd studied Buber, that you had this deep appreciation of those rare moments of profound vulnerability, yours or others. When one person shows up for the other in a no questions asked, no judgment rendered, I'm here with you, no matter how ugly this gets kind of way. And I, I you know, I had a, the, a Christian theologian once, he was trying to reinvent a term for grace. And he, he said, I, I guess the best way I could come up with is one way love, like this no strings mm-hmm. attached, unilateral, I'm with it, I'm in it, you know, to win it with you. I thought that was so powerful. And I, I thought like, if gosh, if more people understood that experience of religion right of the transcendent Mm. gosh i feel like there'd be we'd be less tribal people we'd be less you know antagonistic i mean it's just like the way you phrase that i feel like it's it's deep down what everybody's looking for right that kind of acceptance yeah that idea of grace is one way love like what a beautiful what a beautiful like and and not not one way love in a bad sense but in a sense of like like no matter what you do you're going to get that love right like that that is just I think that's incredibly moving. And I think that's probably the quote closest that I can, you know, that is probably the phrase that comes closest to articulating my experience of the divine, right? Like I, I, I experience it as just a force of boundless love that I can in fleeting moments kind of tap into and often can't, right? It's something, and you know, just saying it, just talking about it, I think makes you sound like an idiot sometimes, which is so frustrating to me, right? Cause I, it's not something I can defend in a court of law. I can't rationally kind of, you know, parse it into some chart or something, but I, I do, that has been my sense of it. Um, and I, and you're right. I think that a lot of, you know, I think that the religious traditions in a really big sense, we're all getting at very similar things, right? How to live a worthy life, how to be a good human being, how to best connect with and honor this thing that we call whatever name that we give to it. I just think we, we each do it in very different ways. And I think that's important. I think those differences are so important because in each of those particular, the particularist approaches to the divine and to what it means to be human, there's tremendous wisdom. So I don't want all religions to disappear and we all kind of have one universalist religion. Like, I think that would be terrible. I think that each of these religions offers profound moral wisdom in the way they approach these questions. And I think we should learn from all of them, right? I don't think we should try to smooth them out and make them all the same and try to reduce them to one big principle. No, I think there's tremendous value in how each one of them does it differently. And it seems like there's a difference between any kind of religiosity that's a, 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 a like kind of a, a result of that sense of acceptance and solidarity versus trying to attain it. it you know, it seems like religion is at its best when it lives from the gratitude of the one way love as opposed to like mm. trying to practice it to get the one way love. Right. You know, what I mean? yeah, does that, that does make sense. That totally makes sense to me. Where it's like, I, I think what you're articulating is something I noticed. It's sort of the difference between the original sin and no original sin, right? That I think when you sort of think that humans are fallen and are kind of the product of original sin, I think you're always trying, striving to get that love. 
But I think, you know, in Judaism, we don't have an idea of original sin, right? I think it's, it, there's really an idea that you have this pure soul and you choose whether to do good or do bad. Like you have free will and every, every day you make a choice as to whether you're going to wander away from that true soul and be cruel and selfish and, you know, unkind or whether you're going to honor that true soul and be generous and loving and compassion, compassionate. Anyway, anytime you've wandered, Judaism says you can always return, right? The idea of tshuva is the, the Hebrew word for it. It's that you can always return to that true soul. And that's, you know, Yom, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is a day where we talk a lot about that, right? Making tshuva, coming back, returning to who you truly are. But it's something that we do, that you do all year round, right? We're constantly trying to return to the, to the, the true goodness of who we are. You are so good at describing beliefs and rituals. I mean, like, I imagine, like, you're 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 not married, right? Because you, you, no. you talk about in the book how, like, so much of Judaism is about being a child or having children. But I would think you'd be like a dream rabbi's wife or something. Because like, <laughs> you'd be like, you probably better at most rabbis. All right, here's here's Yom Kippur for like you could be teaching the intro to Judaism because you'd pack them out. <laughs> you're very kind. I mean, that was you know that was actually the point of writing my book. Right when I was first learning about Judaism, I just felt a little bit frustrated by some of the books out there that were written by rabbis or scholars, and they kind of were like a rabbi's perspective on Judaism, but they weren't necessarily talking about Judaism in a way that I could relate to as just a regular person, right, who didn't know anything. So I, I really wanted to write a book that translates Judaism for people like me, who the questions we're asking, I'm not, you know, for me, it's not, it's like, I'm not, the questions I'm asking are not, you know, what does Yom Kippur mean? What does Rosh Hashanah about? What The question I'm asking are, what does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to live a truly worthy life? What does it mean to find profound spiritual connection? And so I think that, you know, all of the details of Judaism, I want to talk about and describe in service of those higher questions. Yeah, yeah. Right? You're, 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 it's not a how-to, it's a why it is sort of thing. Although you talk about concrete, practical things, but there's always more of the, of the, of the why behind it. Yes, always. It's definitely more of a why to, and you know, there is a lot of substance to this book, right? I do really describe like, what are the holidays? What are the life cycle rituals? What is Shabbat? But with a big emphasis on the like, the why does this matter? Why should we care? What does this do for us today as modern people? Why is it so important that we continue these traditions? Because, you know, my argument is that, you know, my argument isn't you should be Jewish because of the Holocaust or because, you know, if you don't, Judaism will die out. You know, that's, that's, that, that's such a diminishing argument. You know, my argument is you should be Jewish because Judaism has 4,000 years of beautiful wisdom about what it means to be human, about how to live a worthy life, about how to be a good person, about how to build a loving family and community, right? This has so much ancient crowdsourced, amazing wisdom for all of us, you know, Jews and, and non-Jews as well, right? My book is, my book is, a great book for seekers, right? Or for people who are not Jewish, who know Jews or are married to Jews. Anyone just curious about learning the wisdom of a great world tradition, my book is for you, right? I want people of all faith backgrounds and no faith backgrounds to read my book. So, so speaking of marriage, like you talk about the, the, the phenomenon of inner faith marriage and how it's happening more and more. And there's a lot of people that get concerned about that because, you know, of, of hey, religion is on the decline in general in in North America and, and, you know, Judaism, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it, you know, it's part of this, it's, at least in some of its, in a lot of its 
expressions uh do, do you do you like are, are you like hey look i did you have a practice like a, a policy on interfaith dating before this did it change now that you sort of gotten like you know you really have gotten into judaism i mean do you think about that do you kind of like is that like uh on a dating profile is this like hey turn-ons include must be jewish literate I mean, how does that work <laughs> out for you yeah so here's the thing 72 percent of non-orthodox american jews are marrying non-jews Right. Like I so you know, the idea that anyone should be you know, the ship sailed four decades ago. And I actually think that we now have the greatest. Op- I think this is a tremendous opportunity for the Jewish people to welcome in so many new members of our family, whether or not they convert. Right. I think if, if people want to marry in and convert, great. If they want to marry in, but for whatever reason, they don't want to convert. I mean, Jared got Ivanka in. I mean, he did. It's right. He did. That's very true. But- Which probably <laughs> seemed like a bigger pickup for the team until about. <laughs> Three years ago. <laughs> yeah, it uh, doesn't seem like much of one now, but okay. So there, we, this is where we are. But like, you know, I just, I, I, I think Who would that be your our, dream pickup for the team? If you could like oh, marry someone into it, would it be like an actor, a comedian, oh, or an actress? Who would be the person that would be, you, you would be your male Ivanka pre-2016? Oh, there's so many. I mean, I, I, I would love to just like invite the entire Obama family in, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, right? Like that's like, let's just come on. I would love her to come in. I mean, I mean, the thing that's so that I think is so important is like, you know, we have an opportunity to make so many more people part of our family and to say like, look, okay, if you want to convert, great. But if not, you know, how can we make you part of our family? How can we teach you our love of traditions and share them with you and just share the love with you so that, you know, you'll be part of this. Maybe you'll want to raise Jewish kids. Maybe you'll want to be part of a Jewish community. You know, I, my approach to interfaith couples is just radical welcome and total love and embrace. Right. I think that shaming and shunning people is awful and and just morally wrong, number one, and just totally counterproductive, number two. Right. We have the opportunity to welcome so many new people into our family. And like, what a gift that is for us. You know, I I just and by the way, when you meet interfaith families, oftentimes it's the non-Jewish partner who's the one insisting on joining the synagogue, who's the one insisting on sending the kid to Hebrew school. Right. Who's the one who's actually knows more about Judaism than the Jewish partner. So I think a, a policy of radical welcome and love and embrace is exactly the way to go. Yeah, you talk about chosenness in in the book about the concept of chosenness, and like I almost feel like you say like it's something like chosenness doesn't mean choice. It doesn't mean we're better than anybody. It just means Jews have a unique role in the world. And I think what you hold together so well is I think on one hand you have people that focus on the particularity of their tradition and tend to not play well with others, right? And then you have other people who are so into ecumenical this and interfaith that, but really uh, they have a sort of watered down appreciation for their own this ground they stand on. But you really hold those two in a nice creative tension where it's almost like digging into the particular makes you more open to the universal in some interesting ways. Like exactly, it's, th- these aren't mutually exclusive for you. Of course not. No, not at all. I think you know. I think there's basically. I think what Judaism is saying is like, okay, we have these this particular relationship with the divine. We have this particular way of serving the divine. We have this particular way of understanding ethics and morals and all of this. But like, we don't proselytize, right? We're not trying to convert anyone else. Everyone else should do exactly as they please. And we will respect and and honor those different religious traditions. But this one is ours, right? And I think when you don't honor that particularity, you don't unearth the wisdom of it, you lose something, right? I want my Christian friends to be honoring their particularity and my Muslim friends and my Buddhist friends and my Hindu friends and my secular atheist friends. I want each of them to dig deeply into their particularities and find tremendous wisdom 
and then we can all learn from each other. There does obviously have to be some basic universal norms of, you know, decent behavior and kindness and respect. But I think within those norms, we have so much to offer each other and there's such richness. So I think digging down into that is actually quite powerful. You have this great section in the book on Shabbat and Sabbath observance. And it's one of my favorite parts of the book. And you talk about this amazing, you know, you quote a scholar, Walter Brueggemann, who I, I've read some of Brueggemann's stuff. He's an interesting guy. He talked about how like this, this we're slaves to consumerism and all this sort of like capitalist, like go, 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 go. And you talk about how you were in 2008 when you were still working for Hillary Clinton, that you were working these 18 hour days, at least most days. And you didn't like have any margins in your life. And you said you broke a glass and it, it, on the kitchen floor and you felt overwhelmed and felt too busy to clean it up. And instead of cleaning it up, you wore flip-flops around your kitchen for three weeks. Yes. That was on the Hillary campaign in 2008. That's right. I did. Yeah, and I just thought, I, I, like, I think I really want to commend you for telling that story uh, because I think it, it it's an, an incredibly vulnerable act. And I think so many people can probably relate to it. Cause what do we say? You know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. It's like a goal. Like you, you feel good if you say it, right? Like, right. And, and your whole thing is like Shabbat can be this invitation to like unplug a little bit and actually remember, like smell the roses and remember that, you know, uh, we, we work to live. We shouldn't live to work, you know? And, and, and it's, it was, I just think that your, your description of why Sabbath is, is I think it'd be liberating for anybody, whether they're religious, religious or not. Right. No, it is. I mean, Shabbat, I used to think of it as this kind of oppressive idea where it's like, oh, all these very religious Jews, like they're not using electricity and they're not watching TV and they're not driving and it's so oppressive, all these rules. But now I realize that people who are very observant with Shabbat and do follow those rules, what they're doing is so beautiful and it is so radical and so subversive. What they're essentially saying is that for one day a week, we are not going to be the victims of this horrible consumerist world that we live in, which is constantly telling us, buy more, spend more, work harder, you're not enough, you're not enough, nothing is good enough, you have to keep striving, you're not thin enough, rich enough, smart enough, successful enough. You know, those are the messages that we get every second. And for one day a week, people who really rigorously observe Shabbat, they say, no, no, boss, I'm not answering my, your, my, your emails, no Facebook, I'm not going to be you know, the victim of your ads. No, I'm not going to go by and consume and work and, and, and constantly feel inadequate. For one day a week, I'm going to stop and I'm going to rest and I'm going to disconnect. And I'm going to say, I am enough and I have enough. And I'm just going to be deeply present with the people I love. And when you spend time with people who are observing Shabbat in this really deep, rigorous way, it is so powerful. Right. They just contain, they, they, they create this container for you where like everyone is fully present. No one's on their phones. There's no beeping or, you know, there's no texting. There's no phones ringing. There's no one on there. You know, there's no one watching TV. There's not the noise of all these appliances and cars. You're just with each other in this really deep, fully present, loving way. And it is just so rejuvenating. It's so beautiful. I, I just find the tradition of, of Shabbat observance to be very, very powerful. And I deeply admire folks who do it in a, in a rigorous way. Can you tell a story? that uh one uh rabbi that uh B'nai lap 
Uh, Benet Lappy, yes. Yeah, Lappy. I thought it's so great crash theory. And and you talk about how like you, you quote him and say, like, we all have these her, master actually. stories. Or her, sorry. Yeah. Uh I'm assuming, yeah, sorry. I I didn't Yeah, I didn't the name know. is ambiguous it's a woman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh this it's when your name's Scott. No one ever says <laughs> right, exactly. Easy thing. She says that, you know, we have these master stories, like I'm gonna go to Harvard or I'm gonna get married and have two point five kids or something, whatever. <laughs> And whatever it is that you think, oh, this is my story. And and then when it crashes, you've got like a couple options. You can pretend that the crash never happened and just cling to the master story and just sort of, you know, grit your teeth. Or you can totally reject the old master story and get a new story. Or you don't deny the cr- the crash, but you don't, and you don't reject the story, but you allow the story to be altered. You know, you live sort of, um, you know, after the experience and, and and the experience helps shape the story without trashing it or idealizing it. And, and you talk about how Judaism has done this for, over the centuries, like in biblical times and post-biblical times and the Holocaust and, and yet after the Holocaust. And I thought, this, what an amazing metaphor, what an amazing way to understand how reli- religious traditions stay healthy and can appeal to someone who's like, all right, I got broke up with somebody. I got extra time and I'm stressed out. I'll try this. And it speaks to it. And also what a great way to like think about how religion can inform your own crash stories in your life. I just thought that was such a brilliant thing you put in there uh, that, that, that is yeah. just so helpful on so many levels. Right. I mean, this is your Rabbi Benet Lappy. It's her theory. And she I it helps me understand Jewish history so much because, you know, like you think about there's been this series of crashes in Jewish history. You know, the recent ones are the Holocaust. Right. Like That was obviously a big crash to Jewish theology of this like loving God is going to take care of us. Suddenly it's like, uh oh, what do we do now? You know, another one that's a little bit less recent is the crash of emancipation which is the movement in Europe whereby Jews could actually be citizens of European countries. They weren't just Jews. You could also be a Frenchman or a German person, and you could actually start to join various professions. You could go to universities. And I think, you know, for a lot of these insular Jewish communities, that was a big crash. And some of them said, no, 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 we're going to keep living this insular life. Some of them, which is to deny the crash, some of them just said, okay, great, we're going to run right into the crash. We're ditching Judaism, and now we're just going to be secular people. And then Option three, which is to sort of reimagine the story in light of this crash, we're still figuring it out, right? Reform Judaism, conservative Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, these are all kind of responses to that crash of emancipation where we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Jew and also be part of the modern world and also be part of secular society, right? We're still kind of figuring it out. And so I think there's a lot of experimentation and innovation in Judaism right now, where you're just seeing people doing the most amazing things with Judaism, you know, Judaism and environmentalism, you're seeing people doing things with like feminist and queer interpretations of Judaism. There's an entire Jewish meditation world, which I am a very big fan of. So I think you're seeing a lot of exciting stuff in Judaism right now. Have you had like a personal crash story in your life? Oh, gosh, probably. I mean, many of them. I think we all have. What's like, what's like the one that shaped you like the most profoundly or the one in adulthood that really rocked your world? That such ah, a great question. Um, you know, I think probably realizing, probably realizing pretty early on in the Obama administration that like writing, you know, writing speeches to the president, I was like, this is the thing I've always thought I would do is write speeches for the president. And I was like a fine writer for him, but I just, the narrative was kind of crashing a little bit because I wasn't like a great writer for him. And I was like, all right, I can either cling to this and like keep working for him or I can just kind of like quit and do something else. But then I just thought like, or I could write for Michelle Obama, right? How, did like, you say that? Or did you ask, can I just work for you? How did you yeah, negotiate that? I, you know, I was helping her out a little bit 
on the side while I was writing for him. And eventually I just thought like, wow, I'm just so much better at this. I just sort of like this better. And I just decided I'm going to do this full time. So I just asked my boss, John Favreau, who's now, um, you know, a positive America fame. And I think he was a little, you know, it's hard to lose a writer, right? But he he was really supportive because he's a wonderful guy and been a great friend and mentor to me. And I just moved over to writing for her. And, you know, I'm sure I've had other like actual classes. I'm sort of like, sort of hard to think of. It's funny, I haven't really thought about my life so much in this way. You know, probably I will say back when I was a lawyer, um, it wasn't a, a quick crash, but it was a gradual realization of like, wow, this is not really what I'm talented at. You know, after a couple of years at a law firm, I began to realize like, you know, if I keep going, I am not going to be successful. Like this just, I just don't have the aptitude for this. I am much more of a writer and a communicator. And, you know, I got very lucky in that I got offered the job on Hillary Clinton's campaign. I sort of got rescued. But if I hadn't, I'm not sure what would have happened. What are you doing? Like, what's your day job now? So I am now working full time, basically just promoting this book. That is what I'm doing. I, what a I great do some, yeah, it's a great. I mean, I do some paid speaking as well, but it's, you know, it is challenging to sell a Jewish book that's not about anti-Semitism or Israel. You know, unfortunately, those are the two things that tend to get covered in the news about Judaism. And what gets covered less are things like, hey, guys, Judaism has beautiful and transformative wisdom about how to live a beautiful life and how to find deep connection and how to be a good person, right? Like that's not particularly newsy. So it's it's challenging to sell a book like this. So it, it takes a lot of time and legwork. Do you think you'll go back into politics? I don't know. Isn't it funny? Like I I I thought when I left, like when the White House ended, I thought, oh man, what I'm I'm gonna miss it so much. How will I how will I, you know, how how will I live without having my colleagues surrounding me, without this constant kind of energy and churn and and deadlines? And it's actually it's been okay. Right. I actually, I think I've, I've enjoyed writing in my own voice. I love studying Judaism. I love talking about it and speaking about it. So I don't know if I had, you know, if someone needed my help at some point for some amount of time, I, I'm, I'm certainly open to it, but I, I don't have any plans right at this moment. Do you think about being a rabbi ever? You know, I did at one point think about it. And I realized that actually that's not the best role for me, right? I, I actually think there's a lot of power in being someone who is not an expert but who has to learn deeply and really teach stuff to themselves and then translate it for others. Like, I think it's sort of like asking a speechwriter, oh, you know, you love writing speeches about healthcare. Have you thought about being a healthcare policy person? Right. And that's a very different role of being the expert, of being the one who knows all the details, whereas the speechwriter is the one who, you know, can learn the details, but then translates it for others. And I think I'm better in the role as a translator than as an expert. Yeah, it's interesting. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called Mere Christianity. I have it, and I'm dying to read it. I literally am looking at it right now. It is on my desk. It's an interesting book. He's, he's, you know, in it, he's sort of saying by mere, he means like, this isn't any specific brand, even though he was an Anglican. He's like, this is what I think is at the heart of like Christianity over the centuries. And I guess as as not a rabbi, you're freer to, to talk about mere Judaism in the sense of mere, like, you know, like, this thing where it's like you, you know you see the common thread and reform and orthodox and conservative, but you don't, like you don't have to like be loyal to a specific brand in your role. Like you can it, it, you can be inclusive in a way that I guess you might have fewer options if you're a rabbi. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think also you know I if you actually look at my acknowledgments, like I probably had fifty rabbis uh, reviewing my book because I'm just so. I, you know, I, I'm so conscious that I don't know what I don't know. You know, being a non-expert, I'm very, very conscious of that. So I had rabbis from every possible denomination and background, ultra-Orthodox, all the way to like 
super reform reconstructionist because you know I need that expertise. And that's actually what you do as a speechwriter, right? You learn to the best of your ability, you write the speech, and then you call on that healthcare policy expert and you say, hey, I need you to scrub every sentence of this and make sure it's exactly right. So this is sort of, you know, that's kind of how I approach Judaism is I learn as deeply as I can. I take, you know, I, I write it out and then I always have experts review it because I don't know what I don't know. I, do they ask you to speak at like rabbinical school sem- seminary? Like, do, do, are you asked to go to places <laughs> I like am, that? I'm actually, I am speaking at a couple of rabbinical schools coming up in the, in the coming months. Yeah, they're very open. I mean, the Jewish, the Jewish world has been wonderful. I was worried when I first wrote this book that people would say, well, who are you? No, you're not a rabbi. How dare you think you can write this book? I have not gotten that from anyone because I think they see how many rabbis I had reviewing this book, right? They look at the acknowledgments and think like, wow, she really did her homework. And they see all of the footnotes and endnotes for, you know, all of the texts I've cited. And they think like, okay, she did the work, right? She, she, she got the expert review. She did the work. So it's okay. Yeah, and I just think that what you do well is something that rabbis, ministers, clergy like probably need to do in a society like ours where like if you were sending somebody to go be a missionary in uh, northern India where there's very little like uh, Christianity or something, if they, they were a Christian missionary, they would study so much of North Indian culture to learn how to translate it. But our prevailing kind of secular culture is so different than a sort of, you know, Jewish or Christian sort of way. And, and so little time is spent training clergy about how to translate. You know, yeah. you, you, you get all the content, but you're not, there's very little uh, time put into learning how to tell the story in the language that's different from the, the language inside the religious circle. And I, I just think you do that so well uh, that, I mean, I, I would hope that they would like mine you for that. You know, and it's, I think actually a lot of rabbinical schools do put a lot of emphasis on the translation, right? On like the how to give a sermon, kind of how to teach this. But it's very, very hard, right? Like I, you know, this is the the skill that I have most developed. And I will tell you, trying to translate Judaism, it was so much harder than writing speeches for the president and first lady. So much you harder. You make it look easy in the book. It was not. Trust my friend. It was so not easy. This, I mean, every chapter, I probably blew up every chapter four or five times. Right. I would often have them spread out on my living room floor and I would just be staring at them thinking like, how does this fit together? Right. It was just this was the hardest thing I've ever done. I can't even tell you how hard it was. So I, you know, I really don't envy rabbis. They have a real challenge of having to explain this incredibly deep, rich, complex tradition that has no dogma. Right. They can't just say this is the rule. That's it. Right. It's like, okay, this is the majority position on the rule, but here are these minority voices that say this, and then other people say this. And, you know, that's complicated, right? It's actually really not easy to teach. Do you have like a, a home base synagogue or temple like that you, you hang your hat at? I'm not a member of any uh, synagogue, but I do have a couple of places I, I go here in DC for, you know, the main holidays, for the occasional Shabbat service. There are so many great rabbis in Washington, DC. I just, they're, amazing and I love them and they are my friends and I, you know, I kind of hop around a little bit. Um, I am a 42 year old unmarried woman without children. And I think most synagogues are not really kind of shaped for people like me. They do tend to kind of be more centered around families. So it's, you know, synagogues are kind of an awkward fit for me. I think there are some synagogues that are a little bit, you know, have kind of a a different approach and I, but you know, it's, it's generally, yeah, I'm sort of a tough fit for a lot of synagogues. I feel like, though, like with this book and you're speaking and 
the White House. I feel like if you really if you join somewhere, that would be a huge feather in the cap. That <laughs> hey, guess what, everybody? Uh, I don't know. know. There are a lot of no. There are a lot of. I would guess there'd be a lot of bragging rights. If they, like, no, no there's a lot of prominent folks in D.C. or members of synagogues. I would not be. You would, would be pick up. Trust me. Trust me. I mean, it no. would be, it would, you you would be a feather in someone's cap. I, right? I, I, I guarantee it. <laughs> I doubt it. Sarah, you're, this is a, a great book. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for just telling your story in it and sharing some of your story with uh, with me today and, and my listeners. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. You ask such thoughtful, moving, insightful questions. I actually feel like I learned a lot from this conversation, so thank uh, you. The pleasure is all mine. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Sarah for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book here all along. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.